Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. From Mamma Mia, hi, I'm Claire Murphy. Welcome to The Quickie, getting you up to speed daily. One year ago today, the lives of 22 people would be tragically cut short. As we go to air tonight, at least 27 people are missing after a volcano erupted off the coast of New Zealand. It's believed more than 20 are still there, with conditions too dangerous to mount a rescue operation. One person is confirmed dead, but recovery teams say the toll will rise. The incident on Fakari, White Island, a volcanic eruption that also left dozens of people with life-changing injuries, has left scars both physically and emotionally for those who were there that day and who are still fighting for answers. Today, we speak to someone who was there when it unfolded and the lawyer who's hoping to get closure for some of those who can never go back to the way it was before. Mamma Mia subscribers, you've been asking and we've been listening. Now you can get all of your exclusive subscriber audio on Apple Podcasts. That includes everything from bonus episodes of your favourite pods to exclusive segments to all of our audio series. To link your Mamma Mia subscription to Apple Podcasts, open the Mamma Mia Out Loud page in your Apple Podcasts app and follow the prompts or head to help.mamamia.com.au. At 2pm on the 9th of December 2019, 47 people were enjoying the sights on New Zealand's White Island, just 48 kilometres off the northeast coast of the North Island in the Bay of Plenty. Imagine what it'd be like on Mars then. Yeah. One of those people was British-born New Zealander Jeff Hopkins, who'd visited the island 25 years ago and had been trying to organise a return trip to experience it with his 22-year-old daughter, Lilani. We had great intentions, never actually got there. And then for my 50th birthday in June 2019, she bought us tickets to go to White Island. So that was my 50th birthday present. We never actually managed to get there in June because every time we went, it got cancelled due to poor weather or heavy swell. So back in the end of June, we asked them and said, hey, when's the most reliable time to go? They said early December. And so we booked for that Monday the 9th of December. The island is home to New Zealand's most active cone volcano. With continuous volcanic activity over the past 150,000 years or so, creating an impressive crater. The site holds the record for the longest historic eruption episode, going off continually between December 1975 right up until September 2000. It also erupted in 2012... 2013 and 2016. Because it's so active, it's a pretty rugged place. It's quite barren, just very unnatural colours, bright white and bright yellow crystals, pungent sulphur gas streams that had kind of hues of green and red in them. It's how you might imagine 
kind of a lunar landscape on the outside of the island that doesn't get the prevailing wind, therefore has the, the volcanic gas and steam. There is vegetation and green and grass, but within that main area up to the crater, not really anything grows. It was a very unusual landscape and a very harsh kind of environment, lots of rock and evidence of previous eruption. For the past few decades, the site has welcomed tourists who can only step foot on the island with a registered tour operator. And in the weeks leading up to December 9, 2019, it had been showing signs that it was close to another eruption. Tremors and sulphur dioxide were at their highest level since 2016. The alert level was raised to level two just over two weeks before that day. Despite this, the tours continued. You're advised to wear strong walking shoes. Both Lilani and I, we wore some hiking boots. I wore shorts, but I did have a thin, long sleeve top uh, with a hoodie. Lilani was, she had shorts on, but she still had a jumper. I mean, we had a raincoat in our bag because you were never quite sure what the weather was going to do. But there was quite a breeze out there. So although the sun was out and it was warm, the breeze was quite cooling. So before we left the boat, we were all issued with hard hats, gas masks, and we had life jackets just to get us onto the island. The boats that we go out in can't actually get to shore, so they anchor just in the bay and then use an inflatable to get everybody actually to shore. At that point there, we talked about staying within the two guides. So we had one at the front and one at the back, and we weren't to kind of wander off, but to stay within the guides. They had radio contact with the boat, and the skipper who was still on the boat had radio contact with mainland. The island is really, really heavily monitored, and we stopped at some point and looked at the different monitoring systems there. So that kind of gave you a false sense of security. But the safety briefing is really around you wandering off. So it was really about keeping together and keeping in sight of the of the guide. Just after 2pm, as the final tour group on the island started their walk back to the boat, the trapped gas, steam, ash and rock could be held back no longer and it exploded violently from the crater. Our tour had finished and we had got back onto our boat. The skipper took us around a little cliff and the reason he said is just that some there's some really good photo opportunities around in that bay so we went around i took some photos and i remember him saying if you look in the very distance right on top of the crater edge you could see some little black dots and that was one of the other groups and in fact one of my photos that i took there if you zoom all the way in you can see you can actually see people there from there did a fairly gentle sweeping 180 degree turn which meant that i was on the seaward side of the boat just as the boat had turned my attention was drawn by the commotion on the other side of the boat you know it wasn't like it was screaming or it was just made enough noise to make me turn around and and when i turned around i was faced with this towering cloud of bright white ashy gray black and instantly I knew it was erupting but for a split second it was just it just looked incredible Go, 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 go. 
I remember just feeling like how awesome was it to see that, to be there and to see it. And we're just a few hundred meters offshore. That all happened within, I mean, it was just split seconds. The skipper at that stage had increased the speed of the boat. We were now moving quite fast. We were already heading in the direction back to where we'd come from. But I remember the point of which it kind of changed was the cloud that had gone straight up had engulfed the island and it just came to the top of the cliff and was rolling. It was a rolling gray ash cloud that came up to the cliff and then over the cliff and down to the sea and it just kept coming. I felt kind of helpless. The crew had lowered the inflatable. They'd gone back over to the shore to ferry people. First boatload arrived. From the cabin, you can't actually see the back of the boat. You've only got windows out to the side, so you can't see, but the first boatload came on. One of the crew members came rushing in, asking if there were any doctors. At the same time, went to the front of the boat, grabbed a couple of first aid kits. That just got our attention that there are people with injuries. We didn't know what injuries. And I went to that crew member who was grabbing the first aid kits and just said, hey, we're first aid trained, can we help? She said, yes, please. We need all the help we've got. So we followed her back out to the back of the boat. That was when I was first faced with the injuries. And now I was kind of expecting to see abrasions, cuts, you know, from flying rocks. But all that we were faced with was just the most horrific burns. I've never seen anything like it. From minor to the absolute severe, there were people who it was like their face and hands were were made of wax and it just started to melt. Of the 47 people on the island that day, 22 people, including 14 Aussies, have died. One of the victims passed away in July this year, still trying to recover from his injuries. 25 survivors are still recovering. The bodies of two victims have never been found. All but three of the survivors suffered serious burns and have spent the last 12 months undergoing treatment. We have since seen photos from one of the victims, Crystal Browett's camera, showing the eruption as it first emerged from the crater. Her sister, who survived the incident, recalls just seconds after the pic was taken, their guide telling them to run. The question so many asked directly after the disaster was why people were allowed on the island if it was so dangerous. A question that has led to many of those affected launching legal action against the tour operators. Rita Youssef is a lawyer at Stax Goodcamp who've been hired by passengers and family members of those who died to pursue a case in Australia against the cruise ship operator Royal Caribbean, the company whose ship many of the Aussies involved in the incident came from that day. Rita, what outcome are those in this lawsuit hoping for? Their ideal outcome would be to get their lives back. Unfortunately, that's not going to happen. So I suppose the next best thing is that they get compensation that will help them to deal with the damage and loss and injuries that they've suffered because a big part of going through what they're going through is financial burden that they didn't have previously in terms of dealing with horrific injuries, in terms of dealing with wage loss, in terms of dealing with needs that they didn't have before. But also part of it is to achieve a sense of justice that companies like the cruise company need to be kept accountable 
that it's not just a matter of them receiving money from people and receiving profit, that they have responsibilities to make sure that they're running their activities in a safe way and that safety and looking after people is paramount over everything else. An outcome in terms of requiring them to pay compensation can also have a positive impact in terms of giving people closure and giving them a sense of justice. Now, you do speak, obviously, to the survivors of this terrible, terrible incident. How are they coping today? It's quite varied. I mean, some people are are okay. Some people are definitely not okay. It's the kind of experience that I think most people will never truly recover from. There is still a sense of injustice and a sense of anger and a sense of having questions that are still unanswered as to why people were allowed on this island to begin with and also why they weren't even given a choice as to whether they wanted to be there based on warnings that should have been provided. So it's still very much raw There's a lot of sadness, there's a lot of grief, and unfortunately I think a lot of the effects will never truly go away. Now, does their case get helped at all by the charges that have just been laid by WorkSafe New Zealand against some of the tour operators? Does that actually help them in their case against this cruise company? I believe it will. There's still a bit of analysis to go and we really would like to see the final findings and final conclusion before we can say for sure. But I believe it will assist because if there is such an overwhelming opinion that things should have been done differently, when it comes to the cruise company, the questions are, Why weren't they using tour operators that were operating in a safe way? Why weren't they looking into all of the risks themselves? Because they weren't merely just an agent. They sold the tour, they branded it as if it was their own. They had people on their ship that they were meant to be looking after. It wasn't just a matter of they handed them over to another company and therefore the other company is responsible. They also had responsibilities to source the best operators and to make sure things were being done correctly. So it does help, but we do want to see the final outcome of the investigation as well before we can say for sure. Now, Rita, it's already been a year since the White Island volcano eruption. How long until you think those people might find the justice they're looking for? It really depends on the individual. Part of it is that some people have suffered extremely horrific physical injuries that take time to reach a point of stabilisation that will allow us to actually quantify what kind of compensation they're entitled to. Some people might reach that point of stabilisation much sooner than others, but It can take years because of the nature of the injuries involved. As mentioned, just last week, WorkSafe New Zealand filed charges. After the largest and most complex investigation WorkSafe has ever undertaken, we have concluded that 13 parties did not meet their obligations and should face charges in court. But not everyone is supportive of these charges. GNS Science is one of the 10 parties, a Crown Research Institute responsible for alerts over volcanic activity on the island. There are concerns that by taking them to court, it will create a cone of silence around reporting much-needed information about sites like this. 
The same thing happened in Italy in 2009 when earthquakes shook L'Aquila. The scientists said that a large quake to follow was unlikely but wouldn't rule it out. A large quake then hit, killing 309 people. The scientists were sentenced to six years for manslaughter back in 2012. They were acquitted in 2015. Also, a petition with 40,000 signatures is calling for the charges to be dropped against the two helicopter pilots who worked for Volcanic Air, Mark Law and Tim Barrow, who helped with the rescue effort. Some saying they shouldn't be thrown under the bus when they put their own lives at risk to save others. So while the Fakari White Island volcano tragedy now gets played out before the courts, there are still 25 injured survivors who are struggling to get back to a place they were at physically before the eruption, and a list of people whose friends and family still just want to know why. I don't ponder on the fact that we missed being on that island by minutes. You know, I still look back at our time on the island. I mean, that was awesome and that hasn't changed. You know, I've got really great memories of our trip. It hasn't changed that, but the point of which it erupted to all the way back to Fakatani and then I guess ever since then, it was been traumatic and for the first couple of weeks were really hard. You just go over things in your mind about whether you could have done something more you could have helped differently maybe you could have done something different that would have made an impact and so you play that over in your mind you know time does heal and with the family and friends and some counseling and some professional help and you learn to take those experiences and try and bring positive out of them I'm definitely changed I'm different because of it but I'm really focused on that being a good thing but yeah it's not easy not easy. This episode of The Quickie was produced by myself, Claire Murphy, with audio production by Ian Camilleri and guest booking by Mel Zauer. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures.